for a raspberry beret The kind you find at a second-hand store Raspberry beret If it were warm, she wouldn't wear much Welcome back to Lunduke's Big Tech Show. We got questions. We got so many questions from all of you. It is absolutely insane. There is no chance I'm going to get to all of them here this hour, but I'm sure as heck going to give it a try. First question comes, uh, by the way, if you want to send in these questions, send them to brian at lunduke.com. Send them on in. Put show question in the title. That way I'm a little bit more likely to see it. Or even better, go over to lunduke.locals.com. That's our show community page. Every week there I'll make a post asking for your questions. Drop them into the comments there and I'll kind of go through and cherry pick the best or run them through some sort of chat GPT auto selector (laughs) and we'll grab them and rock and roll. All right. First question comes from Edward. Hey, Lunduke. Long time listener. First time caller. Beautiful. If you were going to design the ultimate operating system, what would it be like? Would it have multitasking, preemptive or cooperative, user-based file permissions, et cetera, et cetera? What would it be like? That is an amazing question. If I were to design the ultimate operating system, okay, there's two, there's two things here. One, the ultimate operating system for who? Because let's be honest, I'm a weirdo. I like my operating systems in a particular way and, and it was a particular design that perhaps the majority of people would not. So are we talking about an operating system just for me or for the masses? And honestly, here's, here's a couple of ideas, though, that I think would work for everybody. First of all, yes, it has to have preemptive multitasking. It just has to. Cooperative multitasking is great, but in cooperative multitasking, one application going south and crashing on you, that brings your whole system to its knees. Or at least it can. And that is no bueno. I mean, the old macOS, macOS 9 and before, that had cooperative multitasking. And most of the time it worked. But when it didn't, well, you had a sad Mac, and it crashed everything. But no matter, even the little background processes you couldn't see, they were toast. And that is just not a reality I am eager to go back to. Uh, it was, it was, it was nice when we started moving everything over to preemptive multitasking, where individual applications wouldn't take down the whole system. So yes, let's keep preemptive multitasking. That's just too sweet. However. There were some ideas from some of the older software applications and operating systems back then that I kind of wish we still had. For example, and I've talked about this a little bit in the past, but the old Macintoshes had these cool things called extensions and control panels. Now, what were extensions and control panels? The extensions were basically device drivers. But they were contained in a single file with a name, a human-readable name, and an icon. And you could drag and drop that icon in and out of a folder that was simply called Extensions. And when you booted up your Macintosh, all the extensions that were in that folder were loaded. It was brilliant. 
So for example, if you wanted to install, say, a new graphics card with great new 3D features and, and it, you needed to have a really good driver for it so you could take full advantage of it, all you would do is grab the extension, my cool new graphics card extension with a cool icon, drag it into the extensions folder and reboot your Mac. And it was loaded. Beautiful. Now, what if, for example... It was causing a problem. Man, it's just using up too much memory because every driver you load uses memory in your computer constantly and CPU cycles. So what if you don't want it loaded? What if you just need to squeeze a little more performance out of your machine? You simply go into that extensions folder, grab all of the extensions files that you don't want loaded and drag them out of that folder. You can put them anywhere you want. Throw them on your desktop. Throw them in a backup folder. Whatever. Next time you reboot your Mac, those won't be loaded. Brilliant. You also could hold down a series of hotkeys on the keyboard, boot your Mac up, and it loaded up was basically an extensions-free boot. So it just loaded it up without any of those extensions. So let's say one of your extensions was causing a problem, was causing a crash, and you couldn't figure out which it was. Well, just hold down the keys, boot up. There you go. None of them were loaded anyway. Now you can go into that extensions folder, pull them all out, and load them back in one at a time and narrow down which one was the problem. And usually a Macintosh didn't have so many extensions. You just loaded the ones you wanted. Now compare and contrast that with, say, Linux. Linux, I love Linux. I love Linux to pieces. My whole heart yearns for Linux. However, if you have the Linux kernel which we all do if we're running Linux, we are loading every gall darn driver anyone's ever dreamed up every time we boot. That's ridiculous. The millions of lines of code, the huge amount of RAM and disk space that is taking up is astronomical. And there are some projects, some smaller Linux distros that try and kind of carve out a lot of those drivers and the like, and that helps. But the reality is, there's no easy way for you to go in there and say, I just want the drivers for the computer I'm running. Not in that big monolithic Linux kernel. It's not possible. Not not practically possible at any rate. And I miss that. The same is somewhat true over on Windows. While the drivers aren't necessarily built into the kernel removing them and moving them around is a nightmare an absolute nightmare where they might as well be baked into the kernel it's a nightmare there's no consistent file namings the amount of registry entries oh my lord it's hell on earth it is literally dll hell trying to do that on windows and modern macintoshes honestly aren't much better So I look back to those old Macintoshes and things like extensions and control panels. Control panels were kind of like extensions, except they also had a UI to them so you could theoretically modify them. Both extensions and control panels were loaded at boot time in an old Mac. And control panels let you, you know, modify things a little bit more. But those ideas were brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Now, where, where, what else would I like to see in my, my real ultimate operating system? 
I like I like virtual desktops a great deal. And I miss when I had virtual desktops on a simple grid pattern available on my screen. That's sort of been going away with some systems. Haiku, the operating system based on BIOS, still keeps that around. And some Linux desktop environments still keep that around. But increasingly, more of them are moving to different sort of systems. Uh, uh, Gnome Shell doesn't necessarily have a grid anymore. It has sort of a, a auto-created number of desktops that happen when you open up this different menu and it slides off to the side. It's not the same. I really like that simple style of saying, hey, I have a grid pattern of two by two or four by four, and each of them is a different desktop. And I can assign different wallpaper to them and move applications around and windows around to each individual desktop. So I can just hit a hit a hot key and, and jump between my desktops. I really like that. I, I, I think that was absolutely a fantastic way to go. Also, I'll, and I'll leave you with one third thing that I think was just great. The shelf. And a lot of you are going, what are you talking about, Lunduk? What the heck is a shelf? Okay. Imagine, if you will, <laughs> imagine, if you will, take, let's say, the start bar and the task bar on, on, uh, on Windows or, or the, the panel on GNOME or, or the dock plus the menu bar up top on, on a Macintosh. And instead, get rid of all those. There's no, the, the edges of the screen is literally just the edges of the screen. There's no start button. There's no nothing. There's no panel, no list of windows. There's no nothing. But instead, what you have is a small floating rectangle that you can move around your screen wherever you want that has a wide variety of utilities on it. It is a shelf. All of your drives are available via a click. You just click on a little icon and you get all your drives. So you can access all your files. Your uh, clipboard. You want to see the contents of what's currently on your clipboard? Go back in time and find things that you copy and pasted previously. It's all there on your shelf. Want to find the, the different desktops you have, the different applications that are running? It's all there on your little tiny floating shelf. Uh, CDE, the common desktop environment. OS 2, uh, starting with OS 2 Warp 3. Those systems all had the shelf. If you have, if you ever used uh, HPUX or Solaris or whatnot, you probably encountered the shelf, and it was a beautiful, beautiful way of working with your system. That modern operating systems, uh, Macintosh, Windows 11, most Linux desktops have tossed off to the side, and I say it's due for a comeback. Bring that sucker back. It was beautiful. It was an absolutely fantastic way of, of op interacting with your system. I uh, can't, can't, can't recommend it enough. All right, next question. Dan asks, at the risk of sounding stupid, <laughs> no, no worries, Dan. I, I make it a career out of sounding stupid occasionally. So, uh, you know, come on. come Join the party, buddy. We're having a good time here. He says, I, I have a question for the gray beards here. Would the, would the original IBM PC be considered an 8 
or 16-bit machines. I know the 8088 CPU had a 16-bit architecture like the 8086 did, but it only used an 8-bit bus. Aha! All right, yes. Actually, this is a phenomenal question, Dan. Uh, and, and a lot of people are going to be like, um, what is he talking about? All right. Come back in time with me for a moment to the early 1980s. The very first IBM PC, that very first one, right? That was the IBM. It was later called the IBM 5150. It was using an Intel 8088 CPU. Now, what was the Intel 8088 CPU? Well, it was the same in some ways, as an 8086 CPU. Now, you remember you, we had an we had 286s and 386s and 486s and eventually 586s or Pentiums. But back then, it was the 8086. It was before we got into all that stuff. Now, it was a 16-bit processor. So yes, that's a 16-bit machine. However, IBM wanted to keep their costs down. They wanted to be able to produce the IBM PC as cheaply as possible because they like to, say it with me now, make money. So they set a cap. And I don't remember what the exact cap was, but it was something like a dollar or two. It was really low per chip. It was crazy, crazy low. In order to accomplish that, sacrifices had to be made because the 8086 could not be produced as cheaply as what IBM wanted. Now, why couldn't it be produced? Because of licensing agreements that Intel had in place with other companies. Intel already was doing business with plenty of other companies at the time. And because of those deals, they could not release 8086 CPUs exactly as they were with 16-bit buses for as cheaply as IBM wanted. So what did they do? They made extremely minor modifications to the 8086. Extremely minor. And the big, big change, the one that really everyone notices, is the 8-bit bus. So instead of having a 16-bit bus, they now had an 8-bit bus. The CPU was still 16-bit. So when you're developing software for an 8088 CPU, your software is 16-bit. It just only has an 8-bit bus. It can only push through... 8-bit data. So the question is, did that first IBM PC, that when it came out, was it an 8-bit machine or a 16-bit machine? And I think it's, I think, and this is an awful cop-out, it's mixed. It's a bit of both. It's a 16-bit machine from the software development standpoint, but realistically from a hardware, if we're dealing with how much memory it can, it can push through, how much data it can jam through, it's dealing with them on an 8-bit bus. So it's a little bit of both. This isn't the first time that sort of thing has come up in the industry. Well, it maybe is the first time, but it isn't the only time. Because later on, the NEC, we'll talk about a video game console now, the NEC TurboGrafx-16 came out. Same sort of deal. And from one standpoint, it was an 8-bit machine. But some of the aspects of it were kind of 16-bit. So they labeled it the TurboGrafx-16 and put it forth challenging the other 16-bit consoles like the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis. But realistically, 
and you could kind of see it from some of the game titles, the TurboGrafx-16 was more of an 8-bit system. It was almost like it was halfway between an 8-bit and a 16-bit system in terms of both capabilities and architectural design. That's a fairly common thing for for a system to have one foot in 8-bit land and one foot in 16-bit land. It's, it's, a, it's a good question. At least I think it's a good question. So thanks for tossing that in, Dan. Oh, 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 oh. All right. We got a bit of a rant here, and uh, uh, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating for the Linux users out there. I'm going to read part of this now. It's from, oh, man. I can't pronounce your name, buddy. Vosolder? <laughs> I don't know who. I don't know what. I don't know if I'm saying your name, Vosolder, Vozel, Doctor. I don't know. I'm not sure what your name is, but the the post you wrote was absolutely brilliant. I'm going to read this now to you, and I've got some thoughts on it. Vosolder says, "Quote: I use the long-term support release of Pop OS from System76, which is based on the long-term support release of Ubuntu." There's a specific package that's been broken in the long-term support releases of both for probably at least six months. I created a bug report on Launchpad, which is the system that Ubuntu and Canonical use to, to handle bugs and the like, back in November, which has been confirmed along with several other related bugs reported by other users which have been ignored the feeling I have is that this package is abandoned or at least heavily neglected by the maintainers. What do you think about the apparent lack of testing for long-term support releases that would allow a broken package to cause issues like this? Do you think it's reasonable to have certain expectations about the packages in the repository for a long-term support release? Isn't that the whole point? of a long-term support release. So, context for those of you who aren't in Linux world. A long-term support release from, say, Ubuntu. Most popular brand name in Linux nowadays is that every so often, roughly every two years or so, they come out with a long-term support release. One release that is supported significantly longer than their regular releases. Because their regular releases, which come out every six months, tend to be only really supported uh, for about that long. You really don't get any long-term support on these regular Ubuntu releases. You, it, their support is measured in literally in months before they just kill it off entirely. Now, these long-term support releases are supposed to be supported for years and years, and you can get paid support contracts for them and the like. And the whole point of them is, number one, larger amounts of testing and rigorous requirements for quality and stability of the packages in the repositories. And number two, longer support not just for security patches for the kernel and related software, but longer support for getting updates to stable versions of the software in those repositories. However, in practical terms, you see very little difference, if any, in the quality of the software available in the repositories for a long-term support version of Ubuntu compared to the regular every six month and then it's abandoned version of Ubuntu. The only real difference is in if the packages are going to be updated, 
are going to be checked and fixed, you will get those fixes in the long-term support one for longer. But the, if, if you're on the six-month, every six-month regular releases, you're simply not going to get those fixes. That's the difference. And so in practice, you would think that there would be not be problems like this quite so often. But yet this is not Vosselder or however you say your name, buddy is not talking about something that's unique. His his experience is not a one in a million thing. I myself have encountered many different packages that are simply broken in the long-term support releases of Ubuntu and therefore Pop! OS, Linux Mint, and every other Ubuntu-based distribution out there. They're just simply broken. And in most cases, by the time I look into them, it, I discover that, yes, it's already known by the team. It's reported in their bug repository, in Launchpad, in their bug tracker, that, yes, they know it's broken. They simply don't care. It's not a priority for their business. And, and on, on certain levels, you got to understand that. You got to get that, yeah, you know, they're just going to have to focus on the ones that are going to going to impact their big paying customers the most. And the rest of the issues, the ones that don't impact their customers that are paying customers are not going to get the same level of attention. The good news there is that Ubuntu Canonical the company behind Ubuntu has rolled out their paid support program. So you can get their pro program for a fairly small amount of money. And you can go in there and then you have a little bit more say because you're a paying customer. So you can go to them and say, why are your packages in your repository broken? Now, at that point, if you're a paying customer and they're not making sure that the packages that they're shipping actually work, well, then you, you, your recourse is to stop paying them. And if Ubuntu and Canonical see that people stop paying them because the packages are broken so regularly, well, hopefully they'll start fixing it or remove those packages altogether or at least find some way to help you with a workaround. That's what I would hope to see. I mean, that's that's kind of the situation we're in. I mean, the, these companies, they need to be able to pay their developers and pay their support people to get this work done. Because currently, while the open source and free software development models work astoundingly well for so many things, when we're talking about real support of packages that maybe don't interest a lot of developers of continuing to support things and keep things working and keep th keeping things tested and packaged properly on newer systems. That sort of thing we need to be able to pay someone for. So I like that Canonical and Ubuntu are moving towards that by offering an end-user paid support program. My hope is that that really does legitimately reduce the number of times that I hear exactly what Vosselder here is saying. Because I hear it all the time. It, these these sorts of issues come up. I, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration. On average, at least weekly, I hear from someone who has a similar problem on a long-term support release for Ubuntu, Pop! OS, Mint, what have you. So I, I, I feel for you, buddy. I think that's the best way to go is have that paid support and contact them. But even then, you're not guaranteed anything. But hopefully, they're going to listen to you a little bit more because they like to listen to paying customers. Okay, we got more questions coming up. So stick around. They're coming to get you. 
Here we go. We got more questions coming into Lunduke's Big Tech Show. This one comes from JP Dashes. And by the way, feel free, send in questions. I love getting these. While I can't get to all of them, I get to as many of them as I can. And some of them, some of the ones even I can't get to are just brilliant because we just run out of time. This one comes from JP Dashes, which is a great name. <laughs> JP Dashes says, Hey, JP, quote, I use terminal apps for everything. Good man, JP. I have become that guy. (laughs) I understand. I keep a copy of all of my app data for use in Termux on my phone. All right, a side note before I get to the rest of JP's question here. That's a brilliant way to go. If you have an Android phone, there is an application called Termux. T-E-R-M-U-X. It uses the existing... You don't have to be root or anything for this. It's just in the Play Store. It's fantastic. Uh, it's also up on F-Droid if you use the the, the open source free software uh, Google Play Store alternative. It uses the existing Linux subsystem that is already there in Android. Because Android is just Linux. It's just sitting on top of Linux. It's just that all of the Android applications are basically Java applications, right? But underneath, that's Linux-powered, baby. So you get get this Termux environment. And inside of Termux, you can install, using the Termux package manager, a wide variety of command line applications. And most of the stuff that you can't install through that you can compile yourself or or download arm versions of yourself which means if you're comfortable with using nano or any other or or vi or any of these command line tools you've got them right on your phone and all of these are tools that you can put on your desktop as well including on windows mac not not just linux So being able to have some of the same tools you use on your desktop also on your phone and work with local data is absolutely genius. The the amount of power that this gives to Android phone users is, is absolutely just off the charts. It's fantastic. All right, I continue. Is there any reason, JP asks, I couldn't just install those same command line apps on a virtual private server in a data center or on a Raspberry Pi in my basement and do everything over SSH. That would further de-Android my life. But what issues would I face with each approach? Okay. Number one, that's brilliant. Uh, But there are problems. So you could... If you're running a bunch of command line software, you can stick those all up on a server somewhere. And it could be a cheap server. I mean, you can get yourself a little virtual private server. And we're just talking command line tools. It doesn't need to be anything super beefy with a gig of RAM or something like that for five, six, less than 10 bucks a month to be sure with a ton of storage. There's so many options out there. And what's great about that is you can then have that same, those same command lines with all of your files in a place that's easy to back up, always off-site, and is accessible from your phone, from your iPhone, from your Android phone, from your laptop, from your desktop, anything that has a halfway decent SSH client. Brilliant. Love it. I do that myself. Few things you need to bear in mind 
Number one, if you have such an environment set up, you're going to want to use a terminal multiplexer. Now, what is a terminal multiplexer? A terminal multiplexer, think of it like a desktop environment or a window manager for your terminal. It allows you to run multiple shell applications at the same time within the same terminal. So if you load up your SSH client, you can use something like Tmux, T-M-U-X, um, or that's actually the one I would recommend. I, I recommend Tmux, but there's a wide variety of other ones. Simply search for terminal multiplexer in your favorite search engine. Just go bing or whatever. And Tmux or, or any of the multiplexers will work great. What you can do with those is something called attaching and detaching. So, for example, if you are not using a terminal multiplexer and you log in to a shell account, right? And then you log out. Well, you've kind of just started from scratch the next time you're logging in. Sure, all your files are there, but your software isn't necessarily always running in the background. But if you have a terminal multiplexer going, running, let's say, um, um, uh, a torrent program. So you're downloading and uploading some torrent files and uh, an FTP software and a web browser like W3M or, or Elinks or any of the various other text mode web browsers out there, plus maybe an IRC chat program. You can have all those things running at the same time on the same screen up in your virtual private server or, like you said, on your Raspberry Pi in your basement with Tmux, and then you hit a hotkey to detach yourself, which means you are leaving Tmux running on that machine in the background. All the software that you had up and running is still running exactly like you left it, and it continues to operate consistently. You can then log out of your SSH session, Go about your day and then pull up your iPhone or your Android phone. Use SSH to log back into your server and then do a simple Tmux attach to reattach to your session. And it will, boom, pull you back up right where you were. Same screen layout. It may be a, a grid pattern with all the applications running in their own little, little, little grid, different corners of the screen. And you'll see everything that was happening uh, when, when you left. It's fantastic. It's a great way to go. I highly, highly recommend it uh, if, you, if you need to be able to access that same data from a wide variety of devices. However, you are not going to be able to access them if you don't have good quality internet access. So if the internet goes down, you no longer are going to be able to do your computing. Your computing is out. That is kind of annoying. If the internet goes down, if the power goes down, if you're just in a rural area and you want to take some notes, if you want to, if you want to use your, your terminal application software that you've been loving and using just to write down a couple of quick notes, too bad, so sad, you are out of luck. To me, that is a major bummer. I tend to keep local copies of everything I regularly work on, but I do keep a virtual private server for some other things as well. So what I've done is separate things. When I'm dealing with online specific stuff, stuff that needs to have a network connection to be usable, maybe IRC chat, forums, um, some basic web browsing, um, uh, checking in and out of a Git repository, what have you. 
uh, FTPing around software, I keep a lot of that up in a virtual private server that I maintain. Nice and easy because I need the internet to be able to do that anyway. So I put it up in the server. I have a little little uh, multiplexer session that I can just attach to whenever I want to use it via SSH. And I'm good to go. Rocking and rolling. I'm just having a great time. But then everything else, everything like I want to keep local, everything that doesn't require, absolutely need an internet connection, such as when I'm writing, when I'm taking notes, when I'm working with my calendar even, I keep on my local machine, including my phone, where I can access it even via those command line tools. And then I just keep a script or a Dropbox or a NextCloud or whatever backup solution you want to use to keep that stuff in sync. That's the way I go. Because otherwise, you get stuck with the issue of when the internet goes down, all your computing goes away. And that is such a major bummer. But it is a very cool way to go if you can be assured that you always have internet connectivity, which is never going to be a sure thing. But it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Uh, Bradford. Bradford sends in a kind of an interesting question. So uh, background here. I used to work at Microsoft. I worked at Microsoft during the development of Windows 2000. Uh, back then, in fact, it wasn't even called Windows 2000 yet. It was called Windows NT5 before the name changed to Windows 2000. So Bradford asks, what was Microsoft's culture and development process like when you were working on Win2K? Did anything you witnessed account for the shift toward, towards what Windows 10 or 11 is now? So uh, it, the, the, back then it was it was different. Microsoft is not the same company now as it was during the Windows 2000 days. It just isn't. And that's not just the Windows team. It's every division within Microsoft has changed oh so fundamentally. The culture is different. The ideals are different. The people are different. The skills are different. Um, back then it was still very old school. You know, you had in the, in the windows NT five windows, 2000 days, which I'm just going to say this flat out best version of windows. Microsoft has ever made was windows 2000 solid, solid release. In fact, if, if windows 2000 had good hardware support for hardware nowadays, and you could get say security patches for it. I see very little viable reason to run anything newer than Windows 2000, if that were the case. It's just a, it's just a solid release. Fast, stable, good quality system. Not perfect, but good. But back then, you still had a huge amount of the old schools. The neckbeards, the, the old guard, the people that were true computer nerds through and through. The people who grew up on the command line, the people who grew up before, in many cases, you could even buy a small, you know, IBM compatible computer. When, back when many computers were more the thing, you know, bigger, chunkier rigs. People who grew up on Commodore 64s and Apple IIs. And so you still had this culture of true computer nerdiness. Nowadays, things are a little different at Microsoft. And I, I really left that company before this shift really started in earnest because it really kicked in after the Windows XP years. Nowadays, 
there are plenty of computer nerds at Microsoft. Plenty of them. Um, in fact, some of them are the old guards still. But the driving force within the company nowadays, and this this bears out from just the people I know, um, still talking with people I know that are still working there, and knowing some of the people I'm about I'm about to mention, not by name, uh, but that are there nowadays. They're not so much old school computer nerds anymore. They're more people who think computers are neat. People who, and there's nothing wrong with that. Thinking computers are neat is totally cool. But you don't want someone who is casually interested in a, in a, in a general thing to be running and pushing and designing that thing. And let me give you an example for that. Let's say we're talking about Hostess Twinkies. What if the person, the project managers responsible for the future of Hostess Twinkies, the marketing, the ingredients, the baking process, the packaging, all of it, was like, oh, yeah, Hostess Twinkies, those are okay, I guess. And they like them enough, but, you know, they're not like super into Hostess Twinkies. What you're going to end up with is a product that will mostly stay a Twinkie but slowly diverge into something else because the people running the show are not super fans of the Twinkie, right? You want a Twinkie maniac. You want someone who is just like, I like other snacks and I like other pastries, but nothing compares to the hostess Twinkie and I'm going to make this Twinkie the best Twinkie ever, right? (laughs) That's what you want. That sort of problem where the people driving things, the project managers, the general managers, and the vice presidents at Microsoft that are driving the future of Windows, and we've seen this in Windows 8, Windows 10, Windows 11 now, they like computers. And when they talk, they talk about how great computers are because that's their job. But you can tell when they talk, you can tell by what they've done in the past that they don't love computers. They don't eat, breathe, and and dream computers, right? That's not their thing. Their passion in life, their real passion, and they're not going to say this outright, but you know it's true. Their real passion is not making the best windows that's ever been made. Their passion is making a good operating system for computers that sells well. Which means, ultimately, Windows will stay mostly Windows-ish, but slowly shift over time towards something that's not Windows. And that's something that you're seeing happen nowadays, for better or for worse. I think the most dramatic shift was with the Windows 8 square UI thing that was just the most un-Windows-y thing ever created. And I think that's a bummer. And I think that's a disservice to the people who like Windows. And yes, there are a lot of them out there. And I, I just I think that that's that's what we're seeing. It's that shift culturally away from the diehards, the ones who wanted to create the best operating system in this particular paradigm that Windows sits towards people who want to create a good selling operating system that they think is neat because they're not super into 
Windows 2000, Windows 3.1.1, OS 2, early NTs, right? When we're talking about, about the amazing operating systems that Microsoft creates, I think very few people who have been around during the entire length of Microsoft's run, if you ask them, what's the best OS that Microsoft ever made? Very few of them are going to come out and say Windows 11. I think, I think most people that would answer that either simply never experienced and loved what Microsoft has made in the past, or they're simply, you know what I'm saying. I just don't, I don't think they, they really have that. And so I have many things I want to say. I, I almost went off onto a, a whole train of thought where I started mentioning people specifically, specific a specific program manager in Microsoft. I don't want to go down that line. I don't want to make anyone grumpy today. But I, I think it's it's a totally new culture, and I think that is a major bummer because even though Microsoft has done many many things that I disagree with from a business standpoint and I have a whole lot of stories from my time in Microsoft that are that could be easily classified as horror stories <clears throat> Microsoft still has good qualities and Windows still has good qualities and if you're going to make Windows you might as well make the best Windows you can make not something else you know what I mean if you're going to make Linux, a great Linux, make a great Linux. Don't make a great something else. Make a great Linux. If you're going to make a great Mac OS, make a Mac OS that is the best Mac OS ever. Not that is kind of a mixture of a bunch of different systems. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, I I have a lot of thoughts on that regard. Hopefully that answered your question. It was a, it was a pretty good one. <coughs> I got a question here uh, from coming up at the end of the show, but I want to get this one in before we head off. From Gabe and Dirt. They both ask questions that are related. I'm going to read them both. And and I've got some thoughts on this. And I want to hear more about what you guys think as well. Gabe says, with both big architectural changes in CPUs and GPUs and big software changes such as artificial intelligence over the last few years, how close do you think we are from Star Trek level computing? Will uh, will we use our voices for everyday interactions while screens are relegated to technical tasks? Mm-hmm. And then Dirt follows on with this. Do you think it's possible to program using only voice commands and in a natural language understood by humans, excluding the, the binars from Star Trek? <laughs> okay. So, yes. I mean, here's the thing. Natural language programming has been a thing for quite some time. There are many English-like programming languages out there, including uh, HyperTalk, like HyperCard, AppleScript, and many others, where you use a syntax and verbiage that's very similar to just spoken human English in your programming. We have languages that get very close to that already. And now that we have speech synthesis and speech recognition operating at such a high level, and you combine that with the AI that's happening right now and the significant advancements to uh, artificial intelligence via some of our local GPUs, like with using some of the NVIDIA GPUs, I don't see a reason why we couldn't be really rapidly right at the Star Trek level of computing, where you talk to a computer and tell a computer what to do. 
and then the computer runs that task for you. Essentially programming via voice. Now, there are problems with this. I mean, even even the Star Trek universe themselves foresaw problems with this. Look at like the, the Daystrom episode of the original series of Star Trek. And I know that's uh, a couple of you are scratching your heads on this. But imagine a computer that goes that goes awry. It's told to do something. It misunderstood the intention of the end user. And it begins doing something that is harmful. Or the user it ultimately did not want. The reality is we're going to see a lot of that. There's no way around that. And it's awful. And it's going to cause utter chaos and pandemonium, lost data, all sorts of problems. But is it doable? Yes, it is. We're there. We're right there. It, it is fascinating watching the advances the advancements that we're seeing in artificial intelligence right now. Because we're at the point, uh, Microsoft has even announced that they've got more artificial and stuff, intelligence stuff coming down the line with GPT-4 supposedly able to handle both images and video. So think chat GPT, but uh, it can analyze and generate video <laughs> responses to your queries. That's nuts. Um, so imagine all of that, which, by the way, I should note, Microsoft is also implementing all of that inside Azure as an Azure AI component. So people who want to utilize all of that and plug it in via an SDK into all of their applications, <clears throat> imagine all of the office tools, your web browsers, everything, having artificial intelligence, chat GPT style AI that can do video and uh, image work at the same time as it's doing all of all of the text processing and the text generation. And it's happening via almost every application you can imagine. We're at the point where we are Star Trek level computing. We're there. We're right on that cusp. We're, we're the next step is we have Elcar's desktops and and a computer that responds when we say computer and we can program it by simply talking to it. We're there. It can't be stopped at this point. It's too enticing. People, of course, people want to do this. This is this is the future. Is it going to be good? I don't think so. And I think that we only need to look to science fiction of old and to Star Trek in particular <laughs> to see examples of how horribly awry this is going to go, no matter how advanced those computers get. I mean, in the Star Trek universe, it nearly causes, you know, the deaths of countless thousands and millions multiple times. Now, will that happen in our world? Yes, of course it will. Because we'll be talking about network-connected nuclear power plants, network-connected air traffic control systems, train control systems, traffic lights, surveillance data, social media networks, all of our communications, all of our data, all of our data. Our cars, our self-driving cars have cell data in it now. Combine that together with... AI-driven, 
programmable machines with voice voice recognition, voice and video synthesis and everything else. We won't know what's real, what's not real. We won't know um, whether or not we can truly count on our devices, our computers, our cars, our airplanes, our nuclear power plants, nothing. Because they're all interconnected. And many of you right now are repeating the phrase Skynet over and over again. And you're not wrong. It's inevitable, though. Because people are going to do it. And I don't blame them for doing it because it's darned exciting. It is really, really exciting that we're at the point where we've, we've got machines that, can, that are powerful enough to crunch this much data now. It's pretty darn exciting. I don't blame them. I don't blame them. There's big money to be made. There's some very, very cool things to be done, including the ability to talk to your computer, tell it, speak what you want it to run as a piece of software, tell, describe the logic of an algorithm to it, and it builds it for you and runs it. We're at that point. We're right there on the cusp of it. And it's going to be an absolute disaster, but it's going to be a delightful disaster with a couple of really amazing results along the way. I just hope we don't all die. That, that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week. I hope you come back next week. Give me your questions. Send those beautiful, beautiful, nerdy questions in, and I will get to as many. I didn't get through even... Uh, a tenth of the questions I've got here. I'm gonna I'm gonna carry a few of them over from next for next week because there's a few of these that are just absolutely phenomenal and we did not get to them and I feel awful about that. But keep sending those questions in. If you didn't get yours answered, feel free to post it again next week and uh, maybe that'll help bump it up the list a little bit because I am lazy and then I'll make sure I see it. <laughs> All right, everybody, go forth, do something incredibly nerdy, and check out on our way out. The full version of the Commodore theme song. <laughs> I'll see everyone next week. Are you keeping up with the Commodore? the Commodore is keeping up with you. Are you keeping up with the Commodore? the Commodore is keeping up with you. Are you keeping up? the Commodore is keeping up with you. Are you keeping up? the Commodore is keeping up with you. Keeping up.